You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Before we get going, I have a quick word from our sponsors, the first of which is the School of Continuing Education at Columbia University. If you're spending the summer in New York or think it might be pretty fun to spend the summer in New York, their summer session is excellent. They've got courses in writing, business, computer science, and much more. If you sign up, you get full access to Columbia's beautiful campus and to their state-of-the-art gym, which is probably worth the price of admission alone. Um, the deadline to apply is June 25th. So if you want to check it out, go to longform.org slash Columbia. All the information is there. Spend your summer in New York. I recommend it. Okay, I also have a favor to ask of you, the listener. As you may know, this show is supported by our advertisers. We can work with them even better if we know a little bit about you, our awesome listener. So I'm going to ask you to fill out a survey. It's anonymous. It takes less than five minutes, and I think you can win some kind of a gift card. But most importantly, you'll be helping support this show. So go to podsurvey.com slash longform. It's right there in the show notes. Click through, fill out the survey. Help us help our advertisers help you, the listener. It's a giant symbiotic circle of survey fantasticness. All right, here's the show. Hey, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. I'm here with Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Evan, I understand that your company, The Atavis, will be launching its own podcast soon. That is correct. That is uh, that has happened this week, in fact. And you can find it all of your podcast locations, uh, SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher. Yeah. It's the Atavis Magazine podcast. We're doing serialized versions of Atavis stories. The first one is A Thousand Pounds of Dynamite. There are one of my, five fa- one of my favorite stories you've ever story. heard. Episodes. Yeah. Wow. So I like this. Go I, check it out. I like this idea quite a you're, bit. You're, uh, there are going to be five total, but there's only one out now, or there's five? There's out? one out now. There will be one out every week for the next five weeks. I know how the story ends, and yet I'm going to listen to they're, it. They're making that story. Uh, that, that story got optioned for a movie, too, right? That's true. Todd Phillips and uh, When was the last Cooper. time you guys had a story that didn't get optioned for a movie? It happens once in a while. Very rarely. Um, what about this podcast and well, this the, guest? Before we uh, get to this week's guest... Just a quick thank you to uh, the fine people at iTunes. Mm-hmm. Featured last week's episode with Cheryl Strayed right, uh, right on the front there. Big picture of Cheryl Strayed. It's very kind of them to any uh, new listeners. Hello. I think it was a well-deserving episode. People loved it. People love that Cheryl Strayed. Yeah. People love that Cheryl Strayed. Me included. This week, Ashley Vance from Bloomberg Business Week. He just came out with a book about Elon Musk, which has to be the most aggressively pull-quoted book I've ever seen. People have posted just about every passage of this book on the Internet, which is no reason. Look, if you want to get it the efficient way, get the book. Uh, It's got a lot of uh, pretty uh, juicy stuff. He's a really interesting guy. He writes a lot about sort of the flip side of the tech industry that is commonly covered, um, not the apps and the startups, but the the manufacturing and the sort of bigger stuff. He's he's just a fascinating guy. I love these Aaron Silicon Valley episodes too. It's a good it's a good uh, Aaron talking about the technology industry. It's, it's a great time to hear my unvarnished, uninformed opinions about technology. <laughs> They're very good opinions. What about sponsors? Uh, well, say Aaron, 
that you had uh, unvarnished opinions about other things. All right, here's some opinions. Number one, the best way to get in touch with people is with an email newsletter. Number two, email newsletters can be kind of a pain in the ass to set up and maintain. Number three, there's a simpler way to run one. It's with Tiny Letter. It's from the good people at MailChimp. We thank them for their sponsorship. Those opinions are coming to you undiluted, unvarnished. Here's Aaron Lammer and Ashley Vance. Welcome, Ashley Vance. So you have a book coming out. It's about uh, Elon Musk. Uh, tell me the name of the full title. Yeah, of the book. well, it's Elon Musk, uh, SpaceX, Tesla, and the quest for a fantastic future. Is it weird people sort of uh, disseminating the book without having actually read the book across the internet? I haven't of all the books of anyone who's ever been on the show. This is the first one where I've seen like listicles with quotes all over the place. Yeah, I sort of expected that would happen, I guess. And then, uh, you, I don't know, in my heart, you sort of want the meteor stuff to come out first yeah. before all that happens. But in this case, there were a couple of scoopy things in the book. And so we delayed sending it out to a lot of reporters. And then that sort of delayed some of the meteor stuff. It was like a trade-off you had to make. And so I think what basically happened was people got the book this week and then right. ran through it and grabbed these quotes and, and uh, charged their way. It's an interesting time. Like A lot of people are writing books about things that are done or well, are known, and then it's the book. And this is a story that's totally in progress right now. So at what point did you decide you were going to write a book about Elon Musk. Yeah, I mean, it, that's, it was a hard call on that one. I mean, I'd never... I live in Silicon Valley, and I cover technology, but I was not, like, an Elon Musk fanboy, and it was sort of the opposite. I'd kind of... Um, I would hear about Tesla and pretty much kind of ignore it. It just, yeah. um, you know, you'd hear Elon talking up things, and it seemed like the products were never coming, and so I just... I'd sort of put him into this category of just, like, a hype huckster, hypester kind of yeah. guy. And then in 2012, you know, I um, was looking for things to write about, and, and I, you know, SpaceX had just sent a capsule to the space station, and then Tesla came out with the Model S in pretty quick succession. It was about a month, and I just thought, I was like, man, okay, this guy who's been talking about this stuff for ages is finally delivering, and like in really quick succession, um, nobody else is doing anything. Like right. This. So then I proposed to do a cover story, and, and he didn't give me a ton of access at first, and then I weaseled my way in into more access and got to spend a lot of time with him. And then I, I'd been looking for a book, and then when I hung out with him, I'm like, well, this guy actually answers questions. He's way more interesting than I had given him credit for, and I was like, maybe this is my book, you know? Tell me what you mean by weaseling in. Because, like, there's... There's a tier of Silicon Valley companies that would love to have a reporter, any reporter, even a critical reporter, come profile them. Pretty much every startup yeah. wants that kind of press. And then there's this sort of rarefied tier of Google, Tesla, Apple, these companies that don't really need the press anymore, or at least don't need the uh, investigative <laughs> press anymore. When you go to someone like Musk and you're like, I want to write about you, what does he possibly have to gain from being written about? He he does like the press. I think he would be more inclined than like a Tim Cook or a Larry Page to greenlight something. He and Tesla, you know, doesn't spend any money on advertising and the auto other automakers do. So, I mean, he has benefits and he likes it. So My view of Elon Musk going in, uh, this is this podcast is going to be rife with my like totally unfounded uh, <laughs> opinions on tech companies. But um, my view going in is this is a guy who has kind of a reputation for, God, it's hard to put your finger on this. He's not a, he's not a villain. I don't think people have thought like Elon Musk is a terrible person, but he's he's got a, a kind of a tone deafness to him, to his affect, that I think people have found off-putting. And, and this is not something like I'm inventing. I remember reading this story very early on about um, Tesla and a different company that was also developing sort of a, a battery, car battery technology. And he was like, you know, I my thing is so much better. I don't know why people uh, don't realize that. Some people have told me it's because my personality is unpleasant, right? And like, so there's this kind of idea of this guy. It's like if I don't know if I want to like spend uh, 300 pages with him. Was that was that on your mind when you decided to do this book? I think it was definitely on my mind. You know, when I set out to do that first story, and that's totally how I expected him to be. He. And there are definitely elements of yeah. that in there. He, I mean, he, he is sort of like your engineer, physicist at his core. Yeah. 
It can be awkward to talk to sometimes, and then we'll say things like you were pointing out that just come off uh, like to him, just very straightforward. It's like, of course, this other company's thing is shit, you know? Yeah. And like, it's, I mean, this is obvious. And uh, and you just will say it, and like to other people, it's like, wow, CEOs don't really talk like that. Yeah. <laughs> you know? um, but you know, I mean, as I went along in the book, I mean, this dude is complicated. And, the, you know, there were so many different sides to I mean, he can be really funny and affable and kind of charming when he loosens up. And, you know, he's he's got the weirdest sort of emotions I've ever run across in a human being, I think. He can be really hard on employees and other people in that, like, he doesn't come off as empathetic at all, but he has, like, empathy for mankind yeah. as a whole. It's this very, I mean, I don't think most people are sort of wired this way, so he does feel these, like, really deep, emotions about things just not about like he doesn't give a crap about what happened in your day or right. anything like that yeah i think we have this sort of great people model in america where we say well this person has had this impact in the world we should write a book about them and generally those things overlap with this is a, a fascinating person and i wouldn't say after reading the book he's an unfascinating person he's not fascinating in the traditional mold like he's not comparable to any other person that I can think of who sort of reached a point at 43 years old where he merits a biography. So I'm interested, like, you've been covering um, tech and business for 10, 15 years yeah. now. That's not uncommon in the world of technology that there isn't, like, a articulate, charming person to sell it to you. So what are your strategies when you're putting together a story like that and you don't have a dynamic, charismatic central figure to build around. Like, how do you tell that person's story, and how do you how do you keep it interesting for a reader in that situation? Yeah, I mean, that's is a really tricky thing. I mean, <laughs> I sort of have this soft spot for engineers and like guys who I you know my favorite stories are the ones where somebody worked on something for like ten years and um, finally this thing's working and everybody's forgotten about them and has ignored them and and um a lot of times those guy those people are you know not the most charismatic when you go interview them right. um, so I don't know I mean for me though then I sort of geek out on their whatever they're super into then I'm, I'm like let's see how deep this goes let's get weird you know yeah. and, and so that's that's sort of the part that I end up liking what like what's the interviewing process like with someone like that who's not a, a natural conversationalist or is very sort of uh, uh, tunnel vision focused on their goals like how do you tease out something that a, a different reporter hasn't already gotten from yeah. them I mean, so I started out in the trade press, and I used to cover chips, like semiconductors, and uh, started off in the and, potato chip yeah. trade rag. <laughs> I mean, I used to cover like really geeky stuff, and yeah. so I think I, I think it sort of has helped me a bit. I mean, I I had to get geeky enough at that stuff to be able to talk to these people on a level where they would somewhat respect you and. And I think that's always helped me because it yeah. helps me build a rapport because they they think, okay, at least you're somewhere in the ballpark of knowing what I'm actually doing. And uh, But, you know, I mean, the one part that's the hardest is, is like, whether it's Reed Hastings or an engineer working on data center stuff, these guys are just terrible at telling stories and, like, you have to try so many times to pull it out you know you're yeah. like tell me what you had for breakfast you know they're like yeah. why would i i'm not gonna do that you know? right <laughs> so well i'm interested what what drew you to the chip um trade press in the first place uh i had to get a job pretty much i was <laughs> at a college you know it was the dot-com boom it was like right around 2000 and yeah. i had worked i'd wanted to live in san francisco for summer so i'd gotten a job at this information week magazine yeah and uh i was supposed to like basically be making coffee i don't yeah. think they'd had an intern before but then the tech market was booming and they couldn't fill their pages so i ended up just writing story after story and um, i'd never really thought about being a reporter and then i thought okay this is pretty fun and then um, i graduated from school and I had to get a job, and that's the only thing I knew how to do. So I ended up going to like their competitor, more or less, IDG, and um, and they had an opening that said, you know, need correspondent to travel the world. And I, um, this company, IDG, they publish PC World and Computer World and right. things like that. But they have this internal newswire. So if Bill Gates was speaking somewhere, instead of sending 400 magazines that they own, they would just send one reporter, and then share the story. And so that's basically the part that I worked for, and it seemed like a 
good gig and I just got thrown onto chips and nobody else <laughs> wanted it. So. <laughs> so, I mean, in the course of your professional career, technology reporting has gone from like a really like geeky trade thing to sort of like a pop cultural thing. In the days when technology was all geeky like how how did you get up to speed with an engineer um for something you were covering like do you read trade manuals like yeah it was it's just i don't want to scare you <laughs> i mean i used to go to really i used to go to like semiconductor design conferences and sit in with those guys i would get like um you know like even past like linux i would get like solaris versions of Unix would run them on my computer and learn yeah. all the commands and and um, did you have a background in software engineering at all? No, I was a philosophy major. And I was like a <laughs> terrible. Uh, I mean, I wasn't. I was pretty much like anti-technology more or less. Um, I got thrown so far in the deep end that I yeah. was like, if this is gonna be, if I'm gonna be any good at this, I have to learn this really quickly. And so I just, I mean, I read. Yeah, I read textbooks. When you're putting yourself in the shoes of the people who work in this industry, which was a deeply unsexy industry until five or ten years ago, are you also trying to understand the motivations of the guy who's designing this semiconductor chip? I, I guess I'm asking, when does the human story start pushing its way into these technology stories? Yeah, I mean, I think when I first started, I would do a little bit of that, but I didn't really know what I was doing. I yeah. was just kind of, uh, the thing I loved was like breaking news and I was it was like about products. I was like, oh, I just got the thing on the faster chip. And I mean, and then I, you know, from there I went to the register, this British tech site, and then I went to the New York Times. And I mean, that's when I really started to like this, what the editors were asking for and this switch had kind of flipped in my head and I was like, oh, okay, this now, I mean, now this is fun and like, this is a story. And, um, I'd done like a little bit of it at the register, which is, I think what the times kind of noticed. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's when I started to be like, oh, okay, it's not the tech. It's like, let's talk about the motivation. Let's talk about the people behind yeah. this. And then, I mean, that's sort of what I got a decent reputation for, I think, is that I, even at the times I was covering like enterprise technology, so the data center sort of stuff, you know, I would write about the people behind it and like how things came to be. And I think, I guess I was like decent at that. And so yeah. it became fun. Yeah. I remember I did a story on this, the R programming language, which is. This, did not, I'm not even familiar with that. It's like this open source statistical uh, language that's, it's, yeah, it's like any normal person would not know what it is, but it completely like dominates the field of data analysis and everything. And I pitched it at the times and my editor, Damon Darlin at the time, I mean, he was great. He's like, yeah, yeah, go chase this. And then they buried it on like B8 because uh, not, it wasn't him, but sort of the higher ups were like, nobody's ever going to read this story about R and these two guys from New Zealand. They came up with it. And then, I mean, it was the most read story on the times for like the entire week. Really? <laughs> <laughs> Hey, I'm going to pause things here for a quick words from our sponsor, QuickBooks. And they are talking about QuickBooks Self-Employed, on which you can save up to 50% on an entire year. Uh, this is essential. I've worked for myself. Uh, if you've worked for yourself, doing your taxes can be terrifying. Uh, you don't really know what's a business expense and what's a personal expense. QuickBooks Self-Employed takes the guesswork out. So you know, hey, I spent this money at the grocery store on some booze for the holiday party, and this money was for my picnic with my personal friends, nothing to do with work. Um, then when you do your taxes, it'll tell you how much goes to Uncle Sam and how much you keep in your pocket. And I have a feeling it's going to be more in your pocket because it helps you maximize deductions like your home office, mileage on your car. All this stuff contributes to a great tax return. So I want you to go to QuickBooks Self-Employed at Try self-employed. That's all one word. Try self-employed.com slash long form. You sign up, you get up to 50% off an entire year, and you help us support long form. Everyone wins. Thank you, QuickBooks. Our next sponsor is Trunk Club. Everybody has to shop. Shopping can be a hassle. You have to drive somewhere, and then you have to go inside and pick things out and try them on. Then you have to decide which ones to buy, and some of them don't fit great, and you have to go back and return them. It can be terrible. Trunk Club has a better way of doing things. I want you to go to trunkclub.com slash longform. That helps support the show. And you will go there and tell them what clothes you like. What's your style? What kind of clothes work for you? They'll assign you a personal stylist. This is a real person who picks out outfits for you. They put them in a trunk. They mail that trunk to your house. You try on all the outfits. 
Pick the ones you like, send the rest back. There's no subscription. There's no ongoing charges. You only pay for the clothes you keep. You can send them all back if you like. But I have a feeling you're going to like them and you're going to want to keep some. And then the next time you need more clothes, they'll know even better what you like. Uh, I really like this model. Um, I They sent me some stuff. I kept some pants. They look great. I'm wearing them right now. Trunkclub.com slash long form. Great clothes. Handpicked for you. Thank you, Trunk Club. Here I am back with Ashley Vance. I was looking at your Wikipedia page, and it said that you used to, while you were at the register, host a podcast. It appeared to be about semiconductor chips. I did one about semiconductor chips, and then one about like the history of computing, kind of thing. So, like, a who listens to a podcast about semiconductor yeah. chips, and how do you make entertainment out of a discussion of semiconductor chips? Well, that one was surprising. I mean, so. It used to be like thirty or 40,000 people would listen. The Register was like a blog before there were blogs. It was this, yeah. this very cynical, sarcastic, like British tabloid style for tech. And we just totally cornered the market on this kind of thing. And uh, yeah, I mean, I would get the best thing about it. I mean, if you were into that kind of thing, it was like I could get anyone on the show that yeah. I wanted. And, and I mean, I used to try. So I had like a partner in crime who was... He was very good at humanizing these, like translating geek speak. So he used to help me, and we would sort of tag team on these engineers to get them to lead us somewhere. And did that make you a powerful figure in the semiconductor industry? I mean, I think I guess it's all relative, but yeah, the I mean, the register we we like broke almost every semiconductor story, and and for the size of its audience, I mean, I could email the CEO of Intel or Sun Microsystems or whatever, and they would get right back to you, which was unusual for a publication like that. From what I can tell, there's only, you know, under 100 journalists who are probably covering this stuff. Are you well known among people in Silicon? I mean, you've been there 10 plus years now in the San Francisco area? Yeah, that's right. In Silicon Valley, are journalists even noticed? And is your influence something that helps you? Like, hey, I know this guy, Ashley Vance. I used to listen to his semiconductor podcast in 2004. I should do this story. Or does a certain amount of notoriety start following you after you've been there for a while and you've done stories that may have not brought great things to the people who who were the subject of them? It's tricky. So when I was at the register, I was like pretty much a ruthless asshole and got blackmailed by, <laughs> <or> blackballed <laughs> by every company I covered. Yeah. And then I'm probably the only person who will go from the register to the New York Times, and it flipped, because then all these people had to sort of be nice to me Yeah, <laughs> that, that uh, had been blacklisted I had, before. like, um, Nicholas Carlson on the show, and he was like, yeah, it took me, like, several years after leaving Valley Wag for people not to just say, fuck you, the minute I tried to uh, inquire from Business Insider. So it, it's such a small community that it seems like there's a, a, a liability for a reporter that, you know, when you look at, like, political reporting, no one expects political reporters and politicians to be friends. In fact, that would make you suspicious. But in terms of making friends and enemies, like, do you socialize with uh, venture capitalists and founders? Or Yeah, I mean, Silicon Valley is kind of clubby, yeah. for sure. Um, Where do you live now? I live in Mountain View. I live oh, like a mile from Google. You're dead, dead center. I'm right in the, I'm in the thick, I'm in Google town. So, I mean, there's still people I've pissed off that you're just sort of persona non grata forever, I think, yeah. on some level. And then there's others that um, you get along with. I, the the clubbing nature of it is sort of crappy sometimes. <laughs> I mean, it's like, I think, I think we have very, very good journalist. I think we could probably be harder on the companies yeah. as a whole. And I think tech companies on the whole are very sensitive and like don't really know how to take it. I mean, yeah. it was funny, like for, you know, when I used to be at the register, like, like you could beat Microsoft and Intel over the head and they would never cut you off and pretty much everyone else would. And it just seemed like these companies were just a little bit older and more experienced, and they're like, yeah, it's just another story. You know, they Microsoft had been through an antitrust trial or whatever. For a lot of these companies like Google or Facebook, you know, they just have this glow around them, and then all of a sudden they wake up one day, and now people are, are sort of on them about something, and they yeah. don't really know how to handle it. Well, I think one of the things as, as a person who reads a lot of the, the tech press is 
the the technology industry wants to put out these mono narratives. They want to say Uber is great. Uber is solving all our public transportation problems, and the drivers are making more money than they would at cabs. Everyone has won. And then there's this counter story to that, which is Uber's fucking over drivers. It's not insured. It's like basically a backdoor, and. It's difficult to tell a narrative that includes both of those things. It's it, it's as if the technology industry and its critics can't write a gray story about technology. Yeah. You write gray stories about technology. Generally there's this idea of sort of balance in reporting and when you're when you're talking about a tech startup, do you approach critics and supporters? How how do you keep keep a balanced story there? I mean, I try to. You know, I I really did used to have a reputation. I feel like I've gotten softer <laughs> as I've like gone along, and so yeah. then I feel, yeah, I feel like I'm always feel guilty, and I have yeah. this voice in the back of my head that's it's like if I actually feel like I should be tougher, yeah, than yeah. I am. Um, so yeah, I mean the I mean the one nice thing about being in the valley this long is that usually, it's, and it's not a matter of just like calling the same people. It's just that you do know critical voices who actually know what they're talking about you know right. it, it's like you've built up you know who knows the, the people who are clever and and that you can go to them and get like a real take on what's going on in the la in your over your career what is what have you seen change the most well i'm gonna sound so old and cynical <laughs> <laughs> you know i just i have a fondness for the companies that used to have big manufacturing plants uh -huh. and make things and and employ like tens of thousands of people and that's kind of where my heart is and my interest is and so yeah. the like current wave of companies and some of the entrepreneurs who run around talking about they're the next big thing and they're disrupting this and that I mean it comes off as very shallow to me and so um, that part's been a little bit depressing but then you just don't know if it's because you're just old and cynical and right. <laughs> that's what's going on so I try not to talk about that too much but the, you know it's just so consumery now and, and entertainment and, and I guess that's not my favorite and so that's been the biggest change is like everything is trying to hit that note and so I just end up going to find like a gene sequencing machine or, right. <laughs> or what, is, what is it about this the divide I'm thinking about the opposite of that kind of a business is something like Instagram where you can reach millions of people but it's a 12 person team and you know yeah. in a room basically can create this it doesn't have that same monumental man against material kind of vibe is that harder to write about something like instagram these kind of more ephemeral purely app kind of companies yeah well i mean to be, just be totally frank i just don't do it yeah, yeah. i mean <laughs> i i do just kind of like people that solve some big problem that was haunting us for a long time and and um and that's what just it's hard. I've never. I, every time I've gone anywhere, I try to run away from the consumer stuff as much as I can. Oh, interesting. Yeah, <laughs> and it, I mean that must be kind of helpful because I, I was going to say most people don't want to cover the in the semiconductor. No, it's really great. You're yeah. like friends with all your colleagues because you're writing about the crap that they don't <laughs> they yeah. don't want to, and then you sort of get like a little niche of your own, and then you know then everybody in that niche, if they do have something interesting, they kind of want to tell you about it because yeah. you're the only one who cares. So. <laughs> well, you wrote you wrote a story in I think it was 2011 called the the tech bubble is different, which I erroneously I was reading the New York Times review of your book and um, there's a quote in it which is which is a quote basically um, someone saying um, the best minds of my generation have are spending their hours trying to get people to click on stuff Some, something click like on that. ads yeah. click on ads and I was like oh that was a mistake in the review that was attributed as something said to you. But that's actually that's like a well-known tech industry quote. And then I was sort of and then I said it to you, and it kind of flashed through my mind. I was like, oh no, that's actually from an article you wrote four years ago. And that article, which really was a sort of a seminal article um, that I read that that pushed my thinking about the technology industry in a different direction. It's a real temperature check on the industry as a whole. It doesn't have a specific focus. It's not a profile of the Facebook ad scheme. It's kind of like, what the hell are we doing here? What inspired you to write that article in the first place? Yeah, I think I was getting depressed. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, you know, I do live in Mountain View. I am sort of in the thick of all this stuff, and I'm right by Google. And, and uh, yeah, I was just getting depressing. I mean, there's so much attention on, yeah. on ad technology. I mean, I... 
essentially, I guess, get paid by ads on some level. So how upset can you be? But it was um, it was like all the computer science, all this effort and, and everything was going towards getting people to click on this little box on a page. You know, I wrote a book previously about like the history of Silicon Valley and those tens of thousands of engineers before would have been sort of trying to bend new properties out of materials and and yeah so I just gotten a little bit sad and then when I went to go test this idea I mean I found that even people who were like working at Facebook were getting depressed and quitting and at a pretty young age and sort of walking away from millions of dollars and and I thought okay it's not just I'm not it's not just me you know it's it's like people in the thick of it who are upset so would you have an idea like that and you want to write a story about it. Is that your methodology to go and find people and and share notes and see how they're thinking about it and then make the story about them? Because you can't really, in your position, write a pure opinion piece where you're just like, Silicon Valley sucks now. Right. That, that's not a story. I'm interested in how you take ideas like that and build them something that's not purely Ashley Vance's opinion. I mean, the way that story and those usually work for me is that I kind of have this idea in the back of my head that I've noticed and then I'm reporting other stories and then near the end of an interview or something I'll just kind of bounce it off a few people a few times and see like does this you know um, what's the percentage on how many people like think this if it's if it's like one out of ten it's kind of like okay we're just the grumpy yeah guys in the corner if it's you know going a lot higher than that then I start to think okay there is a story here and then now I'm gonna go like actually hunt this one down right so how do you not i mean how do you avoid becoming the grumpy old man in the room in that situation you're not you're only a few years older than me i think i'm 33 you're not old enough to retire at this point is there a expiration date on being a optimistic person in in the technology industry I think you start to see these cycles go yeah. through, and that's the one thing I've noticed this time is that um, I'll do some interviews with startups, and then, especially lately, it's like, oh, I just invented this thing, and I think, oh, you know, this other company invented that ten years ago, and yeah. and now, okay, we're repeating, and I've been doing this way too long, and so um, I guess lately, I mean, the one thing I've tried to do is really push out into new and different areas um, I'm doing there's gonna be a story coming up on like a farm that I went to for a couple of years and this really interesting family I'm doing a story on Larry Ellison that's tied to sports and and um, so at least for me I've been trying to branch out a little bit and yeah. then and then you know like the Elon book kept me really interested for the last couple of years because it was like I had to learn everything about the space industry and the car industry and the right. solar industry and so um, as long as I'm like learning new things I'm usually pretty happy and then I've been doing stories on video games and you know, just all kinds of different things and then Bloomberg like I was saying before I mean the nice thing is I, like I did this one of my favorite stories is on this um, video game called Eve and the company that makes it is based in Iceland and like I actually got to go to Iceland for like a week and hang out with these people and, and I mean you know it's like the best job in the world when you get to do stuff like that. I've asked this of people who cover celebrities generally in, in music or art you're put in this sort of artificial situation where you're kind of become friends with subjects, but it's not a real friendship. When you're doing something like going to Iceland to interview the people who make this game you really like, is there a part of you that is just having fun and kind of wants to stay? Or do you ever think, oh, I could, I could work, this could be my job doing something in technology instead of covering it? Never quite. The whole reason I like this job is I get to do one thing for a while and then switch to a new subject and I always think of it as like I'm getting this like mini master's class in right. something and uh, I've heard you guys talk to people about that how artificial that experience is the one thing I would say is like whenever possible you know interview a European or a foreigner because they're so much less uptight than Americans are for the most part on that kind of thing and you know when I was in Reykjavik I mean you go out for beers with the guys and you're like really going out for beers and and they don't sort of hold back on what they're saying and um, I remember I went on a rocket launch to French Guiana with this British guy and I mean he let me hang out with him all day the rocket went miss the satellite went missing and it was this crisis and they didn't kick me out of the room or anything and I got to see everybody sweat and then you know afterward when they found it again and they had the the party we were 
poolside at midnight and he's doing shots and smoking cigars and, <laughs> and all this stuff. And I mean, I was like, wow, you know, I would never usually get away with this kind of thing. And so, and then you get to see like how that guy actually acts with his employees and how they sort of treat him and, and you get a much better picture of what's going on. So when you're trying, in, in the case of this Musk book, he was not cooperating with the story initially. So you were pursuing the book as a, I'm going to get interviews with lots of other people and right around him. So when you don't have that I'm um, having cigars at the poolside thing going on, what's your technique for, for bringing that together? Who, who's on that? Who's at the top of that list for Musk? Who, who are the people who you need to get? Yeah, that was pretty frightening. So, because I had sort of sold the book, <laughs> and uh, so you sold the book, unsure whether he was going to participate. Yeah, in that? well, I told Elon I wanted to do a book, and then he said, "He's like, oh, I'll sort of think about it, but probably not." And then I wrote the proposal and I sold it, and then I went back to Elon. We had this meeting on a Saturday that I'll never forget, and I'd sort of rolled the dice, and I hadn't lied to anyone at all in New York, but I, I did have a good rapport with him, and you I had lied about the odds. Yeah, maybe. Well, I thought it would work out in my favor. You know, I, I rolled the dice. I mean, we had a good rapport. Yeah. I thought I could genuinely convince him. And so I went in. I would had this, like, hour-long meeting on a Saturday. And then he, well, he said, all these people have tried to do this before. It's probably not going to happen. I'm going to write my own book, but I'll think about it. And I thought I had him. And yeah. then two days later, this email comes in. He's like, sorry, I can't do this for you. I, I still don't quite know what that meant but uh, it was, he'd copied his agent and he's like I think I'm going to do my own book and that and, book sounds uh, horrible yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and my you know my stomach just dropped you gotta do this walk of shame and go call Call, There's call one thing Harper. I learned from reading your book. It's that I would not read an autobiography of Elon yeah, Musk. Well, that's what I tried to tell him, too. I was like, Elon, you know, things had just started to turn yeah. pretty good for his companies. And yeah. I'm like, I don't think you want to do the Victory Lab. Just people are really liking you right now. And, and let, you know, yeah. let a journalist take a crack at this. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, the good part about it was it turned me into angry, pissed off reporter mode and yeah. like with a super high energy. I mean, I think originally I'd been thinking of, okay, I'm going to do the the fly on the wall kind of book and this is going to be so nice. I'm just going to hang out at Tesla all day and I'm just going to tell people how this company operates. It's going to be nitty gritty. That's kind of what I wanted to do. And now in retrospect, it seems like too easy and cushy. And so, yeah, I went nasty reporter guy. I trawled through LinkedIn. You're the only person who's benefiting it's from a, LinkedIn. It's a good reporting tool. I mean, you know, I, I would just go find all these ex-employees and then send out all these notes. And um, it was really funny. I mean, when you first start, it's like demoralizing and yeah. you get a bunch of no's and you're like, this is impossible. This will never happen. Yeah. And then you kind of go along and then finally you get someone who's just this great interview and they know like everything that happened and you can tell they remember every date and the sequence of things and then they know the 20 people you should talk to and then they sort of put in a good word for you and some of the stuff is so complicated i feel like elon musk is doing like nine things per day even if you're looking even if you took a one month period of the last couple years and you tried to dissect um his business history during that time Three different companies, three different staffs, different cities, yeah. different objectives. It's a sort of a testament to human potential in a way, but not necessarily a, always an inspiring testament to I human mean, not potential. always. Yeah. You know, I mean, he can scare you and be super intense, uh, but I totally agree with what you're saying. I mean, the one thing was like, okay, this is how far people can go. I mean, it's like, oh, now we know. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this, yeah. this is how far. On that level you're talking about, I mean, it's good and bad, but it's inspiring. I mean, yeah. you're like, okay, then you know, I'm going to... Well, I'm not just going to interview 100 people. You know, I'm going to yeah. interview... Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I can do this too. I know? mean, did, did that did that sort of mania kind of infect you? It's well, a, how did you know where to stop here? I mean, the, all these companies are reaching their maturation now amazing things could happen to the story in the next year yeah so i mean that's a kind of a funny story too i mean when i first pitched the book it was 2012 not to sound like the silicon valley guy but all the new york publishers were like i don't know i mean he's probably just gonna fail and yeah people like were interested in the book and there were a few different publishing houses that bid on it but it was kind of 
it was all, I had to sell so hard about this guy. They're all like, who? I nobody even knows who he is. And in Silicon Valley, Elon yeah. was already like the next Steve Jobs, you know. Right. And and but no, I had to sell this stuff really hard. And then it was like, okay, we're either going to write everything crashes and burns, or we're going to write that it. We'll see where we are. And yeah. then you know, I mean, this is like probably the luckiest thing that's ever happened to me was that sort of getting it right then. And then I think the Model S ended up doing better than anyone could have ever imagined and Elon Star sort of rose and SpaceX didn't have anything blow up and yeah. and so it ended up being... I like the positive outcome is like no one was killed in a rocket <laughs> yeah, crash yeah. <laughs> and and so on one level it is too soon to write an Elon Musk book on the other hand somebody's going to write an Elon Musk book I was super interested in yeah. all this stuff and so I just said screw it I'm going to do it and then you just have to I'd sort of planned because the Model X, the second car, or the third car, I guess, was supposed to come out in basically like March of this year. And so I'd sort of had in my head, okay, I'll have the book ready by then. And then, and then, and then he delayed the Model X. They just laid on the car. So, (laughs) whoops. Um, So, most of these people are ex employees or people who are not active with the companies. Are any of the sources from the book? current employees of the companies? Yeah, I mean, so so I'd been going at it for like 18 months, and, and then Elon called me one day, and he's like, okay, I, you know, I might cooperate with this, and we had this big meeting, and yeah, because there were these key people that I really wanted. You yeah. know, he, um, at both SpaceX and Tesla, there's kind of a tight-knit group of high-up execs who have been there almost for the entire history of the companies. Yeah. And I was getting really worried. I felt like I couldn't really do the book without them. I felt like I could do it without Elon, but I couldn't do it without them. Because it, it was just, you had to know how this stuff worked and how these key things had happened. And so he's like, we're at this dinner table. And he's like, okay. He said, okay, he, I'm making this big pitch. And he just goes, okay, yes, yes. And, I, and then I was like, what do you mean by yes? And then I was like, don't answer that. And I just, I was like, this is what I want. I want this time with you. I want to speak. You have to be pretty... If you're like clear with Elon and very specific, I said, I want to speak to these, you know, nine or ten people, name them all. Yeah. And I want to go see this, this, and this. And he said, okay. And then he lived up to his word. So he knew who you were talking to at the company. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it was something that was on my mind because the most similar book I've read to this in my limited reading, because I read books that of people who are going to be on this podcast almost <laughs> exclusively, was Nicholas Carlson wrote this book about Marissa Mayer. And I was like, how do you cultivate these sources within these companies? It seems like this stuff would get you fired. And he was kind of like, yeah, I don't really know. You know, I just email people. And then this week, there's a story. Some employee is getting sued for talking to Nicholas Carlson. Yeah. So it's not like these things don't have potential consequences. Even when they're sanctioned, someone says something they're not supposed to. Is there like a don't talk about X kind of restriction on those kind of interviews? Yeah. The blessing of all this was that Elon churns through PR people, and there were so many PR people that were hired and let go during the course of my reporting that I never dealt with them. I only dealt with Elon. Yeah. And when I would do these interviews with the executives, I was always just me and them, (laughs) so I could ask whatever I wanted. Elon tends not to let other executives talk about the companies, and when they do, they often get in trouble for saying the wrong thing, and so they were all... A lot of people were frightened and would just tell me that straight out that uh, there would be consequences to yeah. talking to me. And but they still did. And I think one of the things I was happiest about the book is that I got to tell the stories of some of the people who have not been covered almost at all in the mainstream press, and and to show you know what they've done at these companies. There's one thing that comes through about the character of this person. It's like a person who cannot tolerate uh, any slight mistake, uh, misstating of fact. And one of the best scenes in the book is that he sort of agrees to do the book if he can footnote the entire thing for you. And you refuse to do that, which I was kind of disappointed because I was like, that sounds totally insane and pretty entertaining. (laughs) Did he at any point actually give you a, a response to the book? Like, did he do that not for publication? Well, we did have sort of a debate when he first proposed that idea because like okay this could go a couple different ways yeah it could be kind of awesome because he has a certain flair for his writing style and just when elon speaks it's yeah. like only elon sort of speaks this way and it would yeah. be kind of interesting to see his i kind of imagined him just shitting on you the yeah. entire time <laughs> the thing that i kept seeing in my head 
which is like sometimes you'll ask him a simple question yeah. and then it's like 20 minutes later you know what I mean and it I, would have I, been like a David Foster Wallace like level footnote, of footnote footnotes would have been longer yeah. than my book I'm sure and the other thing even that did not totally dissuade me. The, the one thing was like, this book will never come out because yeah. we'll be, he'll, you know, he'll never be like, this is, now we're done. <laughs> did you, you know? even bring that idea to your publisher? Yeah, because, well, at first we thought this was going to be a, sort of like a deal breaker. And so we had to really gut check and be like, okay, would we do this or yeah. would we not do this? Ultimately, I'm like, the the cons outweigh the pros and we have to say no. And... um and he agreed, but that was a pretty, that was like a, it was an interesting time. So, and then, okay, so then, um, I mean, I don't want to go like too much like into his personal emails to me, but basically for a couple days. Please do. <laughs> for a couple days. Okay, so the the presses had started on the book. Yeah. And then I let him read it. I was like, you, there, it is physically impossible to make any changes at this point. Uh, he was a pretty good sport about it. I actually thought he would still try to sort of ask me to change something. He never did. He did spend two days. I mean, I was getting, the first day I was getting like an email every 15 minutes starting at like three in the morning as he was going through it, telling me bits and pieces that he didn't like or liked. I mean, it, well, he and he got, I was getting emails like subject line like this is shit and what the fuck. And <laughs> this is what I was, <laughs> this is why I wanted the footnotes. Yeah. yeah. And then, it was mostly around like people's opinions on things which he felt were wrong. <laughs> and then um, then a couple of days went by and then we ended up somewhere in the middle. He's like, okay, this is pretty well done. I thought it was very factually accurate except for these few things. And we were fine. And then that was it. Then we were just kind of emailing. And then this week when the books come out, I mean, I think it's been a little um, more close to home and obviously I think feels like it's something that's like out of his control and everything and so what are the email subject lines this week it hasn't been that great (laughs) but you're still talking to each other i think (laughs) i mean okay so this is kind of interesting this isn't totally unusual in your reporting i've been sort of immersed in this um seymour hirsch story this week and there's this there's this weird thing that happens with the relationship between the u.s and the pakistani uh intelligence service where the U.S. gives huge aid to the Pakistani intelligence service, but it's also kind of known the Pakistani intelligence service works with al-Qaeda. You are covering these people, and you're in some ways flattering their ego by printing their names in this magazine. You're also a little bit at war with them at the same time. And that's sort of the nature of the relationship that I saw in the book between you and Elon Musk, where... He's not outright saying, never fucking call me again. I want nothing to do with you. He's also not saying, I'm going to give you interviews and support this book. It's this weird, we're half at war, we're half friends kind of relationship, which it sounds to me like maybe has like swung less towards the friendly side since the book has come out. How do you navigate that kind of a half friendship with a person? Well, I would say... I feel like I developed a new skill <laughs> in life um, these last two years. I mean, Elon's the hardest guy I've ever had to deal with. I mean, I would put him in a class by himself, and it was a much longer period of time than even, you know, a feature story. Maybe you're doing something similar for a couple months, but, I mean, it was crazy. There were all these ups and downs. I mean, I felt like at any time he could cut off access, and so every time I had an interview set up, and then I came away from it. I had this like immense euphoria, and uh, this adrenaline would just surge through that I'd gotten another one done. And then I would immediately call his assistant and set up the next interview and sort of hope that it would happen. And and um, you know, Elon's so unpredictable. I really I thought maybe I I would do one interview and maybe two or something. And like they just sort of kept going. And and um, you know, he's a hard guy. I mean, we were never. Definitely never friends, and there was n- he. You know, he didn't even. I think Elon likes press and the attention. He certainly really didn't care whether I did this book or not, and probably would have preferred that I not do it. And yeah. So, um, so he was helpful in that he talked to me, but he you know wouldn't sort of. I don't think he would like go out of his way for me. In in, in a lot There's of. There's one story in the book that's sort of a uh, clearly left sitting, which is. Elon Musk's father, there's something worse than bad, uh, you know, my dad wasn't a great dad going on there. And no one 
wants to say exactly what it is. You don't have to tell me. I don't know. Maybe you know what no. it was. It's almost like the beginning of a mystery that just everyone's like, we're not talking about that. We hate him. Like, he's never going to meet his grandkids, period. It was so frustrating. It was, um, I must have had, like, four people start and then yeah. stop and break into tears and be like, I'm not going to be the one that tells you. And so you're just like, oh, come on. I mean, what? Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so you didn't. Act, you, it's not I something know. you know I that you left. Know. It's like, I, was, it's I, thought, yeah. I thought that you must have like decided you couldn't put it, that people had told you off the record or something because it's so it, it can't be as bad as it sounds in the book, I or mean, maybe it can. No, I mean, you know, I tried five or six times with Elon. One time with his brother, I got really close, and yeah. then he's like about to tell me, and then he goes, "You have to get Elon to approve it first, and then." Uh, and, you know, Elon has two stepsisters who are younger and still live with his dad or live in South Africa. And, um, you know, it just seemed like nobody wanted to have something come out that would kind of hurt them. And uh, it was very frustrating. I mean, you're writing this thing and you feel like there's this seminal moment that's like clearly had this enormous effect on this guy and then couldn't find out exactly what it was yeah it was frustrating are you from south africa i was born in johannesburg okay, yeah. i got that from your wikipedia page and i was <laughs> expecting you to come here with an accent and then i got thrown off and i thought maybe it was a bit wikipedia what I, I used to but unfortunately it's gone that would have been good would that, <laughs> would that help you bond with uh with with him i mean i thought yeah i rolled in i'm like hey <laughs> i'm from south africa too he was like yeah <laughs> so you said that you were a philosophy major in college and you, it seems like you kind of happened into this career. Did you have ambitions to be a writer from, from early on? I always wanted to be a writer, but I thought I would write, like, the great American novel or something like that. Yeah. I, I, uh, like, in high school, I'd done – I would get pissed off about something, and I would write, like, an essay for the school paper. And I did that, like, three or four times, and the same thing happened in college. And I always really enjoyed it, but for some reason I never thought of – being a journalist or doing nonfiction, and then when I went, even when I went to work at those trade magazines, my very first story was this lame, lame, lame scoop. But I mean, man, that felt good. I was like, okay, this is fun. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of people, like some of our listeners, you happened into a job. You take, you're 22. You take the job you can get, and you're kind of way down the road of the job you can get. Do you ever think about? taking a sharp turn somewhere else or is this something that you're like I can do this for the rest of my life I think you do I always go through these lulls ups and downs sometimes you'll have a bunch of fun stories in a row and feel really great and then you'll have a couple it's just not doing it for you quite as much and you're yeah. like oh what am I doing and especially as like a journalist in Silicon Valley everyone's getting rich and you, yeah no I mean that must <laughs> be your, feel your weird your opportunities to get rich are kind of limited you know yeah. so um so that's tricky, and then you're like, oh, I know all this stuff about which companies are going to do well, and I know all these people. I mean, I'll have, like, my inbox will be, you know, out of six out of ten emails will be from billionaires. I'm like, there must be some way for me to, yeah. you know, turn this into <laughs> Yeah, into I, think, well, I mean, seriously, does, has that, like, been an issue? Because it's not unusual. There are tech journalists who are becoming tech publicists all over the place now. I mean, these thoughts, like, pass through your head. I just love, I mean, honestly, I just love writing and reporting so much, and then I felt like um, I'd always wanted to do a book, and now that I've done one, and now seems to be doing all right, you know, I already have ideas for other ones, and and I mean, I love doing the feature stories, and I mean, be... I don't know what else I would do. It's it, yeah, I think I would get bored. <laughs> when you write at Business Week and in a larger sense this book, like do you have an idea of who your audience is? Like is your audience when you're writing for Business Week within Silicon Valley, is it people who are curious, people who want to invest in the stock market based on it? Like there's a there's an idea of 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 um, analytics and understanding your audience that's very big on the internet that hasn't really come to journalism and the media yet. Do you have an insight into who your readers are? Yeah, I mean, I think th- especially at Business Week, I mean, the audience is is actually it feels like nice and collected. Although, I mean, I don't try to write just for the business person. I try yeah. to write for a broader audience. And I, I, and then, yeah, I'm always happiest when I take something that's super nerdy and take it to like a broader right. audience. For the book, I specifically thought of my sister-in-law, who's she's a doctor. She doesn't care about cars or 
tech or robots or anything. I'm like, this is who I'm going to write this book for because I want, I want anyone to be able to pick it up. And then I wanted people, I wanted people if they did pick it up to like actually learn something about the space industry or the car. Like, I wanted you to come away from this being like, I don't just know about this guy. I sort of, I know useful things about the world. And um, so yeah, that's who I had in mind for that one because I, I just did not want it to be like a guy's book because I knew it was going to be cars and spaceships and it must have driven Musk crazy to have you like uh, reduce like all of the complexity of the rockets you know into like digestible prose here yeah I mean I feel like I feel like on one hand he was kind of lucky because I think I'm probably more <laughs> of a geek than like a lot of people who could have tackled this book and and was genuinely interested in that stuff yeah and then yeah on the other hand I could when I was writing stuff not just Elon but I could feel that the guys at the company, you know, I mean, this is just like the, the, for dummies rocket engine, and uh, but then you know it was so funny. I got this one New York Times review, and the guy was dinging me for talking about like the gimbal action on, on some actuator thing, and I was like, you know. I put that in there on purpose to like show people that that it was going down to that level and 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 you know so um, just like you just can't win. So <laughs> the major thing as like a as a bystander, I'm from I'm from the Bay Area. I grew up in uh, Berkeley, and it seems like there's always been guys making billions of dollars in Silicon Valley. That's a that's a constant. What seems to have happened in the Bay Area over the last few years is that it's taken on all of the um, dimensions of a get-rich-quick scheme. It's now pulling, it's like a gravitational pull that's pulling every wannabe huckster, everyone who uh, thinks that they could con people into giving them money or, or any sort of a scam is sort of like, it's attracting that kind of personality in addition to the scientists and, and, and the people who, who've always been there. Is that, does that make your job harder with so many people selling bullshit? Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, I think that's true. I think it's gotten easier to, you know, it's easier to start a co- It's cheaper to start a company. It's cheaper, easier, so you get more yeah. companies. You have people from all over the country who have come into Silicon Valley. To, yeah. You know, I mean, it started in the dot-com boom. is pretty bad, but I think it's, like, excessively yeah. bad now. Um, it gets harder in the sense that you get brainwashed over time. I mean, you live in the middle of this. These people are always excited. There's an enthusiasm to it. It's like you. you it's not like you want them to do well. It's just like, oh, you know, I, I appreciate that you're trying to do something. And then, yeah. and then, and so it can be quite easy to get talked in. Oh, yeah, this is this is the night. Right. This is great, you know. And then you sort of come back and you look at your notes or or you try to use a thing. And you're, you're like. I mean, it's really, it's just nothing. <laughs> I mean, I suppose it's also an opportunity in the in the sense that the story of the the gold rush was not the gold mining. It was the, the eccentric and, personalities and, well, yeah. and the, you know, it, it's all the things that it, it brought uh, to the region. But I, I'm interested in, like, h- how you hone that bullshit detector. I, I'm not, I don't fully have it, especially in the era where things have moved from physical objects where you can say, well, that rocket did not go off. We can all agree on that to where people are saying, well, we have 50 million users, and but no one actually has checked that. How do you report on this flim-flam world? I mean, it's really hard, and I think I am as guilty as anyone of making mistakes, and you sort of, I mean, you, you're like, okay, if I'm going to do the story, it's not clear how this thing's going to turn out, but it, it, it's like, I believe enough in this that, okay, let's spend 4,000 words on this thing and then two years later it's kind of it's like oh god you know (laughs) (laughs) this was unfortunate so I I mean I I don't think I have like a magic thing I mean it's just it's that it's that feel that filter and you try to get your percentages up and um, and I don't know you just gotta go with what you're interested in and and then a lot of it's like character you know I mean sometimes um, sort of like you said I mean the products can be secondary to the to the people, and it, if it's a person on a quest, I mean, that's what it is. It's a person on a quest, and who is this person? Just being on the quest, if the person's interesting enough, is, is good. And so um, sort of what comes at the end doesn't always matter. Seems like a pretty good place to stop. <laughs> thank you very much, Ashley Vance. The book will be out when this comes out. Uh, thank you very much for coming in. Thank you. And that was the Long Form Podcast. Uh, thanks very much to Ashley Vance for coming in 
on a wearyingly long book tour. Um, thanks for fitting us in your schedule. Thanks to Jenna Weiss Berman for editing this episode. Thanks to my co-host Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Uh, if you are uh, like the sound of that Atavist podcast, you can find it on iTunes. I also want to thank iTunes for featuring our Cheryl Strayed episode that was up last week. We appreciate it. We'll be back next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com. Support for this podcast came from SAS. Data is everything. And now everything is data, which means more to process, more to analyze. And now more than ever, speed to answers matters. So how do you produce those answers as fast as the world produces data? With SAS VIA, the quickest way from a billion points of data to a point of view. It's a more productive data and AI platform that helps you get more done. Learn more today at sas.com slash VIYA.